Hey, well, welcome to Javel Press. My name is Dustin. And just to get it out of the way, are you seeing what I'm seeing? But are you perceiving what I perceive? So like every 10 seconds, pro presenter comes on the screen, right? I'm not the only one seeing that, right? Okay. Let me help you perceive what you're seeing because about 30 minutes ago, all of our computers totally crashed. And uh, so someone came into my office and said, don't freak out, but we're probably not going to have any slides this morning. Uh, so praise God that the tech guys got it up and running. So see, there's a difference between seeing and perceiving, right? So thank you, tech guys, for getting the slides up. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you're just joining us this morning, we're going through a short series right now up until Pentecost called Encountering Jesus, the Women in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage out of Luke chapter 7. So while you're standing, if you would grab your Bibles, open up to Luke chapter 7. Uh, if you have a blue Bible, uh, grab one of those. We're going to be looking at verses 36 through 50. I'd love for everybody to have a copy of God's Word out in front of them because I can't guarantee the slides are going to work all that great. <laughs> With that in mind, friends, let's hear from the word of the Lord. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. The apostle, or the, the Arthur, Luke writes, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know uh, who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. If we could be seated, let's pray together and keep our Bibles open together as we look at this passage from Luke. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the shocking nature of the gospel. And Lord, I pray that it would awake us, uh, Lord, that we would hear the very voice of Jesus. And Father, would we see him for who he truly is and see ourselves for who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, all throughout this series, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you and me triangulate to see Jesus better. You know the way, you know, if you were lost in the woods, we would triangulate with landmarks, right? So you would know where you are, you'd see a landmark, and then you would triangulate your way out. Well, as we look at these passages, what I want us to do is to look at these stories of these women 
and then triangulate using these women to see Jesus all the more clearly. And the great thing about this passage this morning is we also get to see a man named Simon who is a a, a religiously devout man, to say the least. He is a Pharisee. And as we see this story, hopefully we see this Pharisee and this woman and Jesus all the more clearly, and ultimately we see ourselves more clearly. But, you know, earlier I suggested to you that there's a difference between seeing something and perceiving something, right? So (laughs) this morning we gave us a beautiful sermon illustration, right? We were all seeing the problem with the slides, but we weren't seeing the beauty and the grace that the slides were even up there in the first place, right? It reminds me of several years ago when Caroline and I were first dating, Caroline went to college and she did ballet. And so what that meant was when we were dating, we would go see what? Action movies. No, we would go to the ballet. And, you know, I remember uh, holding Caroline's hand, watching this ballet, and uh, I didn't know what I was seeing. And so, you know what I told her? I said, every time something cool happens, I need you to, like, squeeze my hand or, like, nudge me to let me know that was impressive because, it, it, like, all of it looks the same. You know what I mean? So what she was doing is she was helping me perceive what was going on on the ballet floor because I can't tell the difference between a, like, twisty circle move and something very difficult. Well, now I can because I have girls, right? So I I know, like, there are certain positions that people can take, right? Well, um, I want you to carry with you that idea of the difference between seeing and perceiving because Jesus loves this metaphor. He uses this all the time, seeing, but they do not perceive, hearing, but they do not understand. Jesus says this all the time throughout the Gospels. And so I want to try something this morning. So if we can get that painting slide on the screen. So what, let's try the difference between seeing and perceiving. Uh, all right, so if you look at this painting right now, uh, what do you see? Or who painted this? Anybody know? Rembrandt. You're all very smart, right? So um, if, you didn't, if, you did, if I didn't put Rembrandt's name on the painting, how would you have known this was a Rembrandt? Well, Rembrandt's style, right? What's his style? Dark backgrounds, light showing us what we are supposed to focus on, almost like there's a beam of sunlight. And of course, who is the focus? Well, it's Jesus. Uh, This is a surprising painting. It's the raising of the cross. If you look down at the bottom in the dark, you can see a man sort of stretched out like that. That is the Roman guard lifting up Jesus. There is a man wearing a turban staring at you, bringing you into the painting. But of course, the focus is on the King of Kings, right? There is the plaque uh, hanging over Jesus' head, right, that's nailed to the cross. It's the raising of the cross by Rembrandt, right? So it's a, a painting. But are you perceiving everything about the painting? Well, let me just hold off on just sort of dissecting the painting a little bit more. If you go back to just the main title slide, uh, what I want to suggest to you is just as sometimes we need someone to help us understand ballet or maybe you need help understanding a Rembrandt painting, Uh, The same is true when we study the Gospels. We can see things, but do we actually perceive and understand what's going on in front of us? In our passage this morning, if you were to look down at Luke chapter 7, I would suggest to you that there are no less than four incredibly shocking things that happen in this story. Four of these things, if you actually think about it, should surprise you, especially if you are a very devoutly religious person in the room. All four of these things should shock you. So what are those four things? Well, the first one is I want you to see that Jesus accepts the dinner invitation of a Pharisee. Look at Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Our passage begins and it says, One of the Pharisees 
asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Uh, Friends, it's fascinating to think that Jesus not only ate with tax collectors and sinners and the bad people, he also ate with whom? Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? If you're new to the Bible, just understand that a Pharisee was the most religiously devout person you could think of. They were so religious, they hardly needed God's forgiveness because they never sinned. Other people, they were sinning all the time, but we, you know, our noses just lift a little bit higher up in the air. Ever met a religious person like that? Well, for some of us, we would think that Jesus would avoid people like that. But the amazing thing over and over in the Gospels is Jesus is willing to eat with Pharisees just as soon as he is willing to eat with tax collectors and sinners and even prostitutes. The Gospel of Luke earlier tells us in chapter 5 this, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others, that's a lot loaded in that phrase, others, reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And what does Jesus say famously? Why does Jesus eat with all kinds of different people? Jesus answered them, Because those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, we are all sinners, Pharisees and prostitutes and tax collectors alike. And each one of us, whether you fall high up on the important scale or not, or whether or not you are rich or poor or male or female, we all need to be invited to Jesus's table. Uh, Friends, you know, I know you've probably heard me say this before, but (laughs) your, your table means more than you often think it does. Uh, you know, I, see if you can sort of follow this syllogism, right? This, this sort of logical argument. All right, so track with me on the meaning of a table, all right? So when God created man, what did he make them? He made them male and female. And then where did he put the man and the woman? A garden. And a garden means what? Food. And food means what? A table. And a table means what? Fellowship and belonging. When Jesus invites people to sit at the table with him, or when we come to the Lord's table, we are invited into his fellowship. We are invited to belong in his family. When Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners, it's because he understands his table to be a mission field. Uh, Friends, is your table really any different? Um, There's almost a sacramental nature to a table, right? A holy mystery to a table. Because when you invite somebody to eat a meal with you, what you're saying on some level is you belong here. You are welcomed here. I want to have fellowship with you. Which is why Jesus is constantly having meals with people. And why God, when he comes into our world, he's constantly having meals with his people. You see, what's shocking to us should not actually be all that shocking, should it? Jesus comes and the Gospel of John says he comes in and he, he moved into the neighborhood, as one translation said it. But for us, though, it may be shocking that Jesus is willing to sit at this table with a Pharisee. But this is exactly why Jesus came, to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? So then something even more shocking. Right? So it should shock you, it should surprise you that Jesus is having a meal with a religious hypocrite. 
Uh, Jesus knows this meal is a trap, and you're going to see that it's a trap pretty soon, and yet Jesus still goes. So that's the first thing that should surprise you. The second thing is then, if you think that's surprising, guess what happens next, right? It's going to make you blush, because look at verse 37. And behold, I love Bible translations that still use the word behold. No other English word captures the beauty of that. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. You see, the second shocking thing about this passage is not only Jesus accepts this invitation from a Pharisee of all people, Jesus then uh, has a woman of the city, a sinful woman, whom we don't get her name. She enters in and she begins to stand behind Jesus and she's weeping over him. And eventually she comes down and lets down her hair and she starts to wipe his feet clean with her tears. And she takes the alabaster necklace uh, perfume off of her neck and she pours it on his feet. Now, now, if you don't understand what's going on, you may probably, should probably understand how people used to eat in the uh, ancient world. They would not have sat at tables and chairs uh, at a big feast like this when a rabbi would be invited. People would probably be reclining on their left arm, and they would sort of be laying down with their feet behind them. And it was almost like they're sort of um, lying down on this left arm, and then they would eat collectively like this with their feet away from the table, which explains how she can come up behind Jesus uh, at his feet. But what's really shocking about this, of course, is the nature of this woman. I mean, who is this woman? Uh, We don't get her name, and we don't get really any background information about her, but there are a couple of hints. If you were to look back through church history, it's often claimed that this woman is whom? Anybody know? Many people believe this is Mary Magdalene. The problem with that is this passage only appears in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke never tells us this is Mary Magdalene. Although, interestingly, if you were to look in your Bible, in Luke chapter 8, in the story right after this story, we are introduced in verse 8-2 to Mary Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. But as tantalizing as it may be to think this is Mary Magdalene, that's never stated in our passage, and Luke doesn't really think it's important for you to focus on who this woman is as much as it is what's going on in relation to Jesus. She could be any woman would be another way of understanding this. And, of course, uh, she may or may not be Mary Magdalene. And, of course, the real question is, what kind of sinner is she? Well, we know from Gospels like the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus says things like this to religiously devout Pharisees. He says this in Matthew 21 to Pharisees. He says, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds. So it could be that this woman is a prostitute. But of course, again, Luke doesn't actually say that. And I think the point is, is that any sin can make us feel ashamed. And Luke doesn't want us to over-ascribe this either to Mary Magdalene or to one particular sin. We shouldn't see some sins as worse than others, right? But what else can we possibly know from this woman? Um, Obviously, she knows that she is a sinful woman. But interestingly, the same word sinful is the exact same word that Peter uses when he meets Jesus. When Jesus meets Peter, he says what? 
Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. What we learn about this woman is, on some level, she's deeply aware of her sin. And she knows somehow, through the preaching of the kingdom of God, that Jesus can forgive her. And so what she does is she has, just like all Jewish women would have, a necklace with some perfume in it. And that's what she takes off and she starts to, uh, to clean his feet. I mean, could you imagine the awkwardness in this situation? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Jesus has come as a respected rabbi. This is a Pharisee. He's an important person. You know, he crosses his T's and he dots his I's and his shoelaces are always tied tight. And he's having Jesus over. And in the ancient world, this may seem strange to you, but in the ancient world, uh, meals like this were not private matters. This was normally done outside on like what we would call a patio. And so the whole community would be able to come and listen and stand around the perimeter and listen to a, a teaching of a rabbi. And so this sinful woman hears that Jesus is in her town, and she goes and she watches this meal. But then on some level, she sees that Jesus' feet have been unwashed. And no one has anointed him at all, and so she takes it upon herself to do that. But why is she doing this? I mean, what's going on in this awkward situation? Not only is there an awkward meal happening between Jesus and this Pharisee, now this incredibly sinful woman shows up, and then she just starts weeping. I mean, could you imagine if uh, you took out a, uh, not me, but a well-respected pastor to the back porch of Bella Union? And then someone from Medford, that kind of person, you know, from Bear Creek Parkway or wherever you think weird people live, and they showed up and then they just started weeping, what would you do? Well, look at verse 39. What does this Pharisee do? Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this guy were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. You know, what's so shocking to me about this is if you think about what this Pharisee is doing, on some level he probably knows that Jesus is unique. He probably wants to figure out who Jesus is. He doesn't believe in Jesus, but he's curious. Uh, we may say that, if anything, he's annoyed and wants to investigate Jesus for himself. So he says, like, oh, come over to dinner. And then he says, yep, I knew you weren't really a prophet. I knew it all along. And then to sort of heighten the awkwardness, look what Jesus says in verse 40. Jesus understands what the Pharisee is thinking. And what does Jesus say to him? Look at verse 40. We learn the Pharisee's name. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon... This is not Simon Peter. This is a different Simon. Jesus answered him saying, Simon, I have something to say to you. <laughs> and he answered, say it, teacher. Um, to me, this is the most awkward verse in the whole passage. I'm made so uncomfortable by what Jesus says. I mean, you, have you ever gotten one of those emails? Hey, how's it going? We should meet over coffee. And you think, oh no, what have I done? Or has anyone ever texted you, hey, we should talk? <laughs> Have you ever been excited when someone texts you, hey, we should talk? Does no one do this to you? This is like a weekly experience for me. Hey, we should talk. And I'm like, oh, Lord have mercy. What are we going to talk about, right? Or, if, you know, someone that I love, you know, is like, hey, we need to talk. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm already sorry. Whatever I did, I'm so sorry. 
No one gets stressed out. This is what, okay, psh, don't act like you don't answer your phone. No one answers their phone. Have you ever tried to call someone? They don't pick up. You know why? It's because they're scared. They're scared you need to talk. And they're like, you need to text me and tell me the nature of our discussion because I need to know what I'm walking into. You don't feel that? I feel that all the time. There's so much stress in this verse. <sighs> Jesus is like, I have something to say to you. Lord, have mercy. Could you imagine? Could you imagine sitting next to Jesus and he looks at you and he says your name? I, I know whenever so someone says my name, I know I'm in trouble, right? You know, when someone says your name, you know you're in trouble. Simon, I have something to say to you. Oh, and what does Simon do? say? Ooh, say it, teacher. He says, say it. And Jesus gives um, one of the shortest parables. Um, it's not, you know, to be honest, it's not the most interesting parable Jesus ever gives. There's not a lot of detail to it, but it's incredibly potent because of the way that he uses a parable. Now look at the parable. What does he say? Look at verse 41. It's simple enough. Jesus breaks into a parable like a good rabbi. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One, owned, uh, one owed 500 denarii. A denarii was a day's wage. So one owed a bunch of money, and the other owed a little bit of money. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which one of them will love him more? You know, what is a parable? I mean, what is Jesus doing in this parable? Well, if you've never heard, had it explained to you, a parable is simply an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? This is the simplest old preacher way of talking about it. It's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, Dr. Abraham Curavia uh, is a pediatric doctor uh, who is also a preaching professor uh, at Dallas Seminary. And I, I love the way that he explains the beauty of a parable. Uh, and his, he uses an analogy. He says, someone does not go to a performance of Macbeth to acquire knowledge of the history of Scotland. One goes to the Macbeth play to learn what it is like to gain a kingdom and yet lose your soul. What makes Macbeth timeless? What's timeless about it? It's about gaining a kingdom and losing your soul. You know, the, the Scottish stuff, that's all like flavor. It's all the spices. But that's not really what the story is about. You know, this parable works the same way, and all of the parables work the same way. That's why they're timeless. They're not really about the details so much as they are about the timeless truths. They're earthly stories with heavenly meanings. So what's this point? Is this about finances? No. This is about being indebted to God. And when we sin, we incur debt to the Lord. There's a record of debt against us. And what Jesus says is, well, what if somebody has a really big debt and it's forgiven? Will that person love more? Well, of course they will, than if somebody who thinks their debt's only this big. See, that's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. You know, and so what Jesus says is he uses a parable, right? He goes through the side door. Uh, he doesn't go directly and say, Simon, you're a religious hypocrite, and you don't understand the kingdom of God, and you're not truly reborn. That's not what he says. Because, you know why? You know why Jesus doesn't talk like that? Because he actually wants to see this guy reborn. And because Jesus is full of compassion. <laughs> and so Jesus uses the side door. He doesn't burst through the front door. He says, Simon, I got something to say to you. You know, 
Imagine a guy with, you know, he's got this guy who's a bunch of money, this guy who's a little bit of money. Cancels the debt. Which one loves him more? Well, you know, uh, Simon understands he's being sort of, you know, roped in. Look at verse 43. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt, right? You know, uh, Simon understands he's getting entrapped probably, but he doesn't want to admit it. And he certainly doesn't want to be won over by Jesus. I suppose the guy with the bigger debt. And Jesus, of course, responds with, yeah, you're right. But then notice what happens in verse 44. (laughs) Because Jesus is going to use this idea about seeing versus perceiving. What does Jesus do next? He asks a question. "Uh, uh, Simon, do you see this woman right here? (laughs) It's like... Of course he does. You know, uh, I love what Dale Ralph Davis said in his commentary. He was like, if the Pharisee were a Southerner, he'd be like, oh, Lord have mercy. No, I didn't see that woman right there. Well, look in Tarnations. I guess there's a woman, right? Well, of course he sees the woman. She's weeping and sobbing in the room and everyone's staring at her and everybody knows what kind of sinner she is. And Jesus looks at Simon and says, oh, hey, do you see this woman right here? Of course he does. And then what does Jesus do next? Of course he sees this woman. Well, this is really shock number three. The first shock, right, is Jesus even eating with a Pharisee, which is great news for every religious Pharisee in this room. The second shocking thing is Jesus has this woman of the city come. The third shocking thing is Jesus is going to confront his host, which is maybe the most shocking thing in this story. Jesus confronts the guy who's having him over for dinner. Look what Jesus says. Look at verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. You see, the third shocking thing is Jesus confronts his host. And friends, what you have to grasp is Jesus has the only right (laughs) to confront people this boldly in their home. Jesus is confronting this man with his religious hypocrisy and his judgmentalism, not so that he can slam him and rub his nose in the dirt, but so that he can wake a dead man to life. (laughs) You know, I know it it, it doesn't always need to be repeated, but um, what's the main thing? What's the main thing? Anybody know how this works? What's the main thing? Whoa, shit! What am I going to do? Hey, there. Be trapped. You're not. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Let's try that again. What's the main thing? What's the main thing? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Friends, the main thing that Jesus has come to do is to call sinners to salvation and reconciliation with God. That is the main thing. Why did Jesus come? To preach the kingdom of God to people who need to hear it. Jesus is not out just to rub a Pharisee's nose 
in the mess that he has made. And neither is Jesus here to rub this sinful woman's sin in her face. Jesus brings up sin so that people can repent and know God's love and forgiveness. What does Jesus say? You have loved much. Go in peace. Friends, the main thing of the gospel is not just telling sinners they're sinful. It is telling sinful people that you are more loved and accepted than you dare imagine. You really are clean. You are forgiven much. You who withhold grace from others, you are rich in mercy and you are rich in Christ. You are loved much. When Jesus confronts his host, he's not doing what you and I do when we get around people who are sinful. You know what we do when we see sinners? We rub their nose in the dirt. You are bad. You are on the wrong side of this issue. Wallow in it. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, Simon, wake up. Be reconciled. Don't you see your sin? And then he even gives Simon an example of what it means to be forgiven. He says, don't you see this woman? She loves much. You know, what I, what, you know, this passage is so awkward. So many awkward things happening. It's hard. But I, I try to think, you know, if I were this woman, or if you were this woman, what would you want Jesus to do? Um, you know, as a four-year-old, I grew up in a, well, for a little while, I grew up in a town called Jackson, Mississippi. And it was a rough and tumble place. And we had two bullies on our street. One was called Big Jeremy and one was called Little Jeremy. And they were both bullies. And uh, I, I'll never forget one day Big Jeremy was being mean to me in my backyard. And my older brother, who was smaller than Big Jeremy, hence the name Big Jeremy. You tracking with me? My older brother, who was bigger than me, smaller than Big Jeremy, saw me getting beat up. And you know what he did to Big Jeremy? He came up and punched him right in the gut. And then Big Jeremy went home crying. But the thing is, with Big Jeremy, he was bigger than us. And to this day, I don't think my brother actually punched him in the gut. Because my brother was short. Shorter than Big Jeremy. And I think he punched him somewhere else. I'm trying to be delicate, y'all. The point is, I'm not condoning violence. But I'm really glad my older brother picked on Big Jeremy and sent him running away. I think there's something similar going on with this woman. I think at some level she's glad that finally someone is saying something to this Pharisee who is slamming the kingdom of God in people's faces. And when they make conversions, they make people twice the son of hell as they are. It's the kind of stuff Jesus says to the Pharisees. Jesus is punching below the belt just a little bit by confronting his own host. But it's not to ruin this guy's life. It's to save this man. Look at verse 48. The fourth and final shocking thing in our passage is Jesus says to her, what? Look at verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with Jesus began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus wants this woman to live a life of love and peace, knowing that she is forgiven. But what are we supposed to 
see and perceive in this story? Well, let me sort of wrap up. What are we supposed to see in this Pharisee? Um, Friends, what we're supposed to see, especially the religious people in the room, of which I am foremost, what you and I need to see is that it's very possible for us to get the answers right and yet to fail the test. It's very possible for us to get all the answers right and yet fail the test. Think about it this way. The, the Pharisee, Simon, he gets the answer right to what is the parable, right? Who loves the guy more? Well, the other guy, the guy with the big debt. He got the answer right, and yet he does not pass the test of faith. You know, uh, the great Southern Baptist preacher, Adrian Rogers, you know, uh, he has a famous quote about Pharisees. Anyone ever listen to Adrian Rogers? He's on the radio some, passed away a few years ago. Adrian Rogers said this warning about Pharisees to his church. He said, have you ever wondered what a church full of Pharisees would be like? Adrian Rogers said, number one, they would all attend every service. Number two, they would all tithe. Number three, they would all work in the church. And number four, they would all go to hell. Friends, the great danger for you and me is to be like this Pharisee, to look down on other sinners as less than us. What are we supposed to see in this woman, though? What are we supposed to perceive? Well, if you can, with your mind's eye, imagine that you are in the room. You're in this awkward, tense moment. You're seeing this woman weep. You're watching Jesus confront his host. And you're one of those people who just kind of walked in to this room, watching this meal happening in the patio because you wanted to learn something about Jesus. You imagine you're in that room. What are you supposed to see when you see this woman? Well, friends, what I want to suggest to you is that when you see this woman, here's what you should be perceiving. You should see this woman, and you should see a saint. You know what a saint is? It literally means someone who is holy and set apart. This is a woman who is set apart. She has been washed clean. Her sins are forgiven. She is a sister to you. She is victorious. She's clean. She is redeemed. And she is loved. She, not the Pharisee, is the exemplar for you and me. Who are we supposed to be imitating? We're supposed to be imitating this sinful woman, not in her sin, but in her repentance and humility and love of God. And who are we to avoid being like? The Pharisee, who may have all the answers right, but doesn't quite get the point of the test, does he? We're supposed to be like this woman. And what are we supposed to see and perceive in Jesus. Well, it's no uh, coincidence that Jesus talks in this parable about debt, right? Somebody owes a big debt, somebody owes a little debt. Well, who's going to love the moneylender more when all of those debts are forgiven? The person who understands their debt is bigger. And this is the exact analogy the Bible uses about our sin that is indebted to God. You know, Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2, Writing to Christians, he reminds us this, having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. You see, friends, when you and I see Jesus correctly, 
and we see our sin, we become like this sinful woman, and we weep for joy that we are forgiven. Uh, Faith is not just seeing, it's perceiving. It's having the eyes of faith. So let me just finish. Um, If you go back to that painting, um, you know, that that Rembrandt, um, what do you see? What's the light focused on? Well, obviously it's on Christ, but if, if you know anything about this painting, you'll probably notice something odd about it. You don't have to understand painting to understand this, but I want you to perceive what you're looking at. See the older man staring at you with the turban? That turban is anachronistic. It would not be around in this time period. It's, it's like putting a, like an iPhone in a painting from the, like the 1600s. It just shouldn't be there. You, you know who wore turbans? Painters. You know who wore a turban like that? Rembrandt. You know whose face that is? The young man who is lifting Jesus up on the cross. Isn't he dressed funny? Why is there so much light on his face? He's also wearing a funny hat. And he's also dressed anachronistically. Rembrandt painted this when he was 27. And it's actually a self-portrait. Because Rembrandt is the young man. And he is the old man. You see, Rembrandt was a devout believer in Jesus. That doesn't mean he wasn't sinful. He was quite sinful. But what Rembrandt understood when he looked at Jesus was he was crucified for my record of death. He understood when he heard stories about this sinful woman, he thought, that was me. But by the blood of Jesus, he could be made clean. Uh, Friends, this is an invitation to perceive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love Pharisees and you love sinful women. Lord, that you love those who are righteous in their own eyes and those who know their sin. Father, we pray that we would each see the gospel for what it is, that we are forgiven much. Father, would we see our sin for what it is, not so that we would wallow in it or hate ourselves, but that we would see the light of the cross. Lord, that we would be like this woman leaving today in peace knowing that our faith has made us well. Father, I thank you for the gospel that we can love much. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now, Lord, that you would break hard hearts. Lord, that you would cause new growth to arise. Lord, that we would love much. Lord, that we would know your love for us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.